You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's, uh, let's go to Lord in prayer over his word. Father, as we come before you today with the scriptures open, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, as we transition into a new theme, so to speak, in this book, as we've looked at the first couple of chapters and learned all about what it means to be just seated in our identity and who you say we are based upon what you've done for us. Now, as we get to chapter 4, we begin this new theme of walk, walk like a Christian, walk like someone who loves Jesus, walk like someone who was loved by Jesus. God, as we get into this theme of walk, Lord, I pray that you would Give us an extra measure of grace and clarity on what this means. Lord, help our hearts not to shift back over to a legalistic mindset of living whereby we think that we can earn your approval and your praise by the way that we walk, but that we we would walk as a way that would praise you and honor you. Father, we we admit to you before we dive into this today that, that we are really weak creatures and we really need you, God, to speak to us. We really need you, Father, to focus our hearts upon Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. We need you to speak to our hearts, and we need you to act in ways that would be miraculous. Help us to be people that would be expecting you to move powerfully deep inside of us and then out through us as we walk out the calling that you've given us. God, we ask that you would open our hearts to to hear from you today. Remove barriers. The only person that can open our hearts is the person who left the tomb empty, and that's you. So we beg you to do that work, and we thank you in advance for what you will do, and we thank you for the power of your word. God, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. I want to start off with this thought just to kind of get your brains and hearts headed in the direction that I think we should go. Um statement the way that we walk out our christian life is really a direct result of the way that we hear the call of god on our lives say that again i want you to just think about it for a minute the way that we walk out our christian walk is a direct result of the way that we hear god calling us the way that i would illustrate this would be with my children in the backyard playing i'm thinking about my kids in the backyard playing and i I go to call them inside for a meal that they've been longing for and excited about. They could come walking really quickly, sometimes run. They're excited for that meal, but there's a big difference between the way they come walking and running for that meal they're excited for and then the day that I call them inside for their chores, right? Um, You might not walk so quickly then when I call them in for their chores. It's a much different way that we walk when it's something we're excited about or something that we're dreading. And the way that this correlates to God's call on our lives is is that if if I hear God's call on my life like it's my Christian duty, yes, I said duty. If I I hear God's call like this is your Christian duty to do this, I might just walk begrudgingly at that point because it's just mere duty. It's kind of like, a husband believes he just has to love his wife because it's his duty and he married this woman. Can you imagine what kind of a marriage that would be? Oh, 
Now, on the flip side, I won't ask you to be too vulnerable, but how many of you have been there? Okay. I didn't ask you to raise your hand, but you can. It's fine. <laughs> so if we just think it's our duty to do what God calls us to do, duty is important, don't get me wrong. But if that's, if that's how we walk this out, is out of the, uh, the undertowing of just, this is our duty. And at some point, we're going to walk really begrudgingly. Uh, maybe here's another way you might hear God's call in your life. Maybe, maybe in some way, and I, I think I do this quite a bit, I, I begin to hear God's call on my life like it's an opportunity to earn his acceptance, right? Earn his love, uh, earn his presence. Like God will be happy to be in the same room with me if I'm doing what he wants me to do. The problem with that type of view is I, I might come running at first when he calls me, um, but then what's going to happen, the, 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 the natural outcome of this is I, I'm going I'm to wind up hiding on the sidelines, bail, quit, tap out, I'm done, don't want to do this anymore whenever I fail to live up to his standards. Follow me? But if, if, if I hear, I mean, you contrast those kind of negative ways of following God's call. If I hear God's call in my life in light of who he says I am, I am his son, I am chosen, I am loved. If I hear his calling me through that lens of who he says I am, and, and in light of what he did for me on the cross, he died on the cross, he gave his life sacrificially and willingly on the cross. If I, if I see and hear his call on my life in light of who he says I am and the things that he has done for me, then, then I think that there's nothing that could stop me from running to his beck and call. When he calls my name, I would come running to him. Like there's nothing that would stop me from charging the gates of hell at that point with passionate, like joy-filled uh, expectancy for God to show up and do massive, miraculous things, not only in me, but through me in other people's lives too. I think that would be the outcome. And that's the picture that I have of the Apostle Paul in these first six verses of Ephesians chapter four. I, I see Paul as a man who knows who he is in Christ Jesus, knows what Jesus has done for him at the cross of Calvary, and nothing's gonna stop him. Nothing will stop the apostle Paul from obeying the call of God on his life. He's been called by God. He knows this. He belongs to God. God owns him. Nothing else owns Paul. He belongs to no one except for God and God alone. And he takes his calling seriously. Paul's not playing games with the call of God on his life. And he takes it seriously because he sees Christ on that cross and he knows what it cost him to call him. For, G for, for Paul, he didn't just cost God a quarter at the, the payphone to call him to come and follow him. It cost Jesus his life in a horrific way. Therefore, Paul takes this seriously because his hope is in Christ alone for the glory of God alone and nothing else alone. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the big idea that I get from looking at these verses is that for us to be called, for, for you to be a called person, for you to be a called person is for you to be a prisoner for the Lord who walks in a worthy manner because of one single hope that you are focused on. Two phrases that Paul uses um, here in these verses that I really want to highlight today. <clears throat> verse 1, he uses the phrase, the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 4, he uses the phrase, called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Every person that follows Christ is a person who is following the call of God on their lives. You say, I follow Jesus, I trust in him. You are, you are following his calling on you. He has called you to follow him. But, but what does this look like, right? Um, what does this calling look like? What, what, what is this word calling in scripture? Oftentimes we uh, boil calling down to this real subjective feeling like, well, I really feel like God like, called me to go give that brother a kiss, a holy kiss on the cheek, right? Yeah, okay. Or I feel like God's calling me to go minister to people in China. Or I feel like God's called me to plant a church. These are subjective forms of calling. And I think there are applications of that in scripture. But in this passage primarily, what is Paul talking about when it comes to call? One of the things that I've uh, learned to say over the years is that the call of God on our lives is twofold. There's a primary calling and a secondary calling. The primary calling of God on your life is to follow Christ. That's the primary calling. The secondary calling on your life is to minister for Christ. You're called to him and then to work for him. Those are kind of the simple brackets that I put in place. If you're not pursuing the call to follow Christ, you cannot pursue the call to serve for Christ. Okay? Don't get me wrong. God can use you. God uses donkeys in the Old Testament um, to do things for him. The primary calling first is to follow Christ, and that needs to be in order before you begin to work for Christ. Um, so that's just a caveat. Um, what is the call of God? What does it mean to be called by God? I, I go to Romans 8, 28 through 30. This passage has found its way into our sermons over the last few weeks quite a bit. Um, but it's, it, it's perfect for the purpose um, of this morning. Romans 8, 28 through 30 <clears throat> should be on the screen in front of you. <coughs> Paul teaches us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Watch this. For those who are called, okay, according to his purpose. So there is a purpose that God has when he picks up that phone and calls us, okay? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. See the purpose? Purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, to be made like Jesus, to become more and more like Christ in order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, there are some 
I think, heretical ways of looking at this, like somehow, uh, somehow Jesus is the firstborn among all of creation. Uh, this is pointing to the firstborn from the dead, first one to be resurrected from the dead. And then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. So if you've been predestined, you've been called, okay? Those whom he's predestined, which means pre-planned. God had a plan. I don't know all the workings of that plan. In sideline conversations, I'd like to tell you I do, but I don't. He has a plan, and part of that plan is that he called those whom he had pre-planned. Those whom he called, if he called you, he also justified you, which means you don't justify yourself. He justified you. He knows that he was calling you, so he justified you. Therefore, you could hear the call of him on your life. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's purpose in, in calling a person is to glorify Christ in them, in those people that are called. He is to glorify Christ in them as the firstborn from among the dead. So some other ways of thinking about this would be this. To be called by God is to be someone who loves God. Ask yourself, do I love God? That's really simple. Does my life prove that I love God? The person that God calls is a person that God knew from before the beginning of time. This foreknew, foreknowledge, intimate knowledge, like a man who knows his wife and a woman who knows her husband. It's that kind of intimate knowledge. God knew you that way. Do you know that God that way? Are you intimately close to him? A person who is called by God as a person that is becoming more and more like Jesus because God's plan for them is to become like Christ so that Christ is glorified in them. Can you look at your life and say, there's fruit in my life. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. Can you say that? You love God because he first loved you. Do you know him who first knew you? Like this is the essence of calling. Essence of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 when he says in verse 1 and verse 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. To be called by God is to be a prisoner for the Lord who walks in a worthy manner because of one single focused hope. One hope. Number one, let's break this down. Number one, we are called to walk as prisoners for the Lord. We are called to walk as prisoners for the Lord. Now, prison doesn't sound like a fun place to me, <laughs> okay? Um, doesn't sound like a fun place. Prison sounds restrictive. Anybody here like restrictions? It's not, not a natural thing that we would like restrictions, Show me a person that says, I love restrictions, and I'll find a place in their life where they hate restrictiveness, okay? So prison sounds very restrictive, which means it doesn't sound like fun. I don't want restriction. I want freedom, or at least what my little brain says is freedom, okay? Uh, sounds lonely. Prison sounds lonely. I don't like loneliness. I don't know many people who like loneliness. We might like to be alone, some of us might like to be alone more than others because we're more introverted. But at some point, not one of us likes to be lonely because we were not created to be alone. 
That sounds depressing, really. You think about prison. It sounds like a very sad place to be. It doesn't sound like something, as far as prison is concerned, it doesn't sound like something I want to brag about. Uh, being in prison doesn't sound like a, a good reference on a, on, a, on, a, on a new job application or resume. Uh, being a prisoner or being in prison doesn't sound like the best foot to put forward as far as a qualification for a new relationship. Hey, I'd really like to be in a friendship or relationship with you, but I'm in prison. Oh, hmm. This doesn't sound like the first thing that we would want to list. Probably not something we want to list on our social media profiles. Yo, I'm a prisoner. I'm in prison. (laughs) But for Paul, this is the first thing he wants us to know about himself in relation to his qualification for charging us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the single hope, right? His qualification for being able to urge us and to charge us to walk out our calling is this qualification. I'm a prisoner for the Lord, therefore let me say this to you. I find that interesting. He knows who he belongs to. He knows who owns him. He doesn't belong to anybody else. Nobody else owns him except for God. Imagine, I mean, this guy's sitting in chains, right? It'd be much easier to say, man, I'm owned by the Roman guards. I belong to them. It's their chains on me. That's not what he says. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk. This word urge, it's a powerful unction type word. He's not just saying, hey, I, I just want to give you like this, um, you know, just brother, I just want to say, I think you should probably like maybe do this. Like he's not saying, hey, this is my suggestion. It's not a suggestion for Paul. Sitting in chains is really important to him. He takes this really stinking seriously. He's like, I'm going to urge you based on the fact that I'm sitting in chains for the Lord I'm going to urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling and keep your eyes on one hope, which is Christ, right? It's not a suggestion. It's a strong urging deep inside of Paul. Imagine if you're in chains uh, physically somewhere like that, that uh, it would kind of ramp up the urgency with which you say things and do things, right? I mean, this is hard for us to grasp, get our minds around, because not one of us here runs the risk of being in jail today because we're preaching the gospel. I mean, we, we, we kind of, like, cast that off, like, yeah, that's true, Joe. Yeah, get it. Let's move on. No. Like, stop and think about this. You do not run the risk of being put in prison today or beheaded because you're preaching the gospel, and neither do I. So what's going to create the kind of urgency that causes us to actually walk out our calling in a manner that is worthwhile and that keeps our eyes focused on a single hope when we have a thousand other things that can distract us, that can become a new hope for us? What's going to cause that? Philippians uh, 1 12 through 14, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Get this. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Right? My first, uh, I don't know, my first reaction to being put in prison for preaching the gospel might be like, this stinking sucks. Like, that's, this terrible. Right? Paul's reaction is, this is advancing the gospel. This is not advancing the power of the Roman guard. 
I mean, in everybody else's mind, if you're going to be a great preacher, right, of the gospel, a great sharer of the gospel, you better get yourself on Twitter, better get yourself on Instagram, better get yourself on Facebook, market yourself really well. Paul, though, no, not Paul. Not Paul. Paul tossed out the human ways of advancing himself and found that his circumstances would actually promote the gospel. What circumstances are in your life right now that you're trying to get rid of that God actually wants to use to promote and advance the gospel? What pain are you pushing back on that you don't want to deal with that God actually wants to use to advance and promote the gospel deep inside of you and through you in our community? In what ways are you trying to ignore God because you want your circumstances to be better than they actually are right now? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Listen to this. So it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Like Paul finds that to be the thing that he wants to wear on his chest like a medal of achievement. That's his medal of achievement. But what medal of achievement do you and I chase? Uh, all sorts of medals of achievement right? I got married. I got seven kids. I pastor a church. I don't have any certificates on my wall. I have read a lot of books, though. Follow my certificates of achievement here. I'm a pretty good, solid thinker. I can pretend like I like people. Some days, don't, don't take that wrong. I like people. Stop it. Paul, man, the whole imperial guard, everybody else knew he was in prison for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident, you want to inspire confidence in people? Say no to the circumstances that usually own and control you and become a prisoner for Jesus so that that can advance the gospel. You can say, you know what? I'm resisting my flesh in this area because I'm called by God and I know it. And so this is really to advance the gospel. Walk that out. Walk that out. Become a prisoner for the Lord, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. That thing that God is calling you to resist, walk away from, do without, live in the midst of restrictiveness on, it's meant so that God could advance the gospel in and through you. Most of the brothers become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Inspire confidence in other people. Live that way. Live like the Apostle Paul. In a sense, what you'll be doing is living like Jesus then. Because the Apostle Paul says all over the place, I imitate Christ, so come imitate me as I imitate Christ. And don't imitate some phony imitation either. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Therefore, you imitate Christ in the way that you walk out your calling. Number two, number two, we are called to walk in a worthy manner. Called to walk in a worthy manner. Called to walk in a worthy manner. The word worthy uh, in this text, the, the original Greek word, which I really can't pronounce, so I won't even try to seem impressive to you by trying to pronounce it because I never took Greek or Hebrew. Although I'd like to someday. 
It's a caveat. The word worthy in our text could be taken to mean um, weighty, weight. It's weighty, important, worthwhile, serious, something we should take carefully. Those are some of the ways that this word can work itself out in a sentence. And just on the forefront, i got to say, like, there's a lot of things in this world that I think are important. A lot of things that I think are worthwhile. Many things that I think should be taken seriously. Many things that I think we should be careful with. One thing that we should be really serious and careful about is making small things into really big things. Making really big things into really small things because when we make lesser things into greater things, then we turn good things into idolatrous things. When we ignore the worthwhile things that are in the scriptures, when we ignore those worthwhile things, we take serious things that God has said and we turn them into forgotten things. Paul doesn't want us to forget the seriousness of the call of God on our lives to walk in a manner that is worthwhile, weighty, serious. He believes we should take our calling very seriously. He believes we should be careful about how we walk out our Christian calling. Our Christian life and the way that we walk should not be something that we take flippantly, that we just give a couple of moments from our week to. This should be a serious, all-encompassing, consuming thing because we're following Jesus who gave his life at a cross. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Called to walk in a worthwhile, serious, careful manner before the Lord. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does it look like for us to do this in a worthwhile? How will you know? How will you know if your pastor is following the calling of God in a worthwhile, worthy, careful, serious manner? How will you know? How will you know if you are when you look in the mirror? How will you know if your friends in your gospel community are following Christ in a worthwhile manner? How will you know when it's time to go to someone and say, brother, sister, You're probably not following him in a worthwhile manner right now, in a worthy manner. Let me rebuke you and encourage you and challenge you, brother or sister. How will you know? Paul, in this text, in verses 2 and 3, says that we are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Just in the immediate context, Paul is clear. We're called to be people of godly character. That would be the, the summary. Godly character. Called to take our walk seriously and carefully. Called to be teachable, gentle, patient. Called to bear with one another's shortcomings. Called to fight for true unity. Called to fight for true peace. This is what it looks like to walk in a worthwhile, serious, and careful manner before the Lord. Now there's three other places I'd like us to go to look at this. I'd like to look at Philippians, Colossians, and then Romans real quick. Philippians 3, 17 through 19. What Paul says here in Philippians 3, 17 through 19 in regards to our walking in a worthwhile manner, this is a tough text. I'll tell you, this one right here uh, in, in Philippians, this is a hard one to hear. It says, brothers, join in imitating me. Can you imagine the humility that it takes to be able to say, come follow me as I follow Christ? 
Like at first glance, it almost kind of sounds like prideful, but it's not. To be able to say, follow me as I imitate Christ is to say, I'm doing everything that I can to be just like Jesus, so you come follow me. That, that's a heavy weight. For me to be able to look at anybody and say, I want you to follow me like I follow Jesus means I better walk this well, right? Because there's people depending on the way that I walk, my kids, my family, my wife, and, and they depend on me and I depend on them. Like we depend on each other as a family unit to walk in a way that is worthwhile. This is the same thing that it is in a church. When one of us starts walking in a way that is not worthwhile, what happens in the church? What happens in a family? When chaos sets in, instead of discipline, the disciplined walking out of our calling in a worthwhile, worthy, serious manner. Philippians 3, 17, 19, here's what Paul says. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is this next sentence is tough for many whom I have often told you. In other words, I've talked about these people often to you. And they now tell you, I now tell you, even with tears, mark that, even with tears in his eyes, wetting the pages of what he's writing, tears in my eyes, they walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's a heavy, weighty text. Called to carefully and seriously watch, imitate those who walk according to the example and the model of Christ. And if, listen, if you and I ignore this instruction, if we ignore this example that we see here in Philippians, we will not take the call of God on our lives seriously. We will cheapen the worthiness of of the call of God in our lives. If we ignore this instruction, we'll regard our earthly desires, our earthly wants, as being more important than our spiritual needs. And the outcome of our lives will be like what Paul talks about here, enemies of the cross. Our lives will become destructive. Serious, right? Called to walk in a worthy, serious, careful manner for the Lord. Colossians 1.10, look at this. Paul prays that we would walk in a manner. And these should be on the screen in front of you too. Both these passages, I think. Called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1.10. Fully pleasing to, to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Like we've got to seriously ask whether or not our lives are pleasing, like a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We've got to seriously ask the fruit of our lives honors God. We've got to seriously pursue growing in the knowledge of God. This is what it means to walk in a worthwhile, serious, and careful manner before the Lord. Romans 13, 13 through 14. This should be on the screen in front of you too. It's not. All right. Romans 13, 13 through 14. You turn there if you have real Bibles in front of you or a cell phone or a device you can turn there and look at. Make sure that what I'm preaching to you is actually from the scriptures. Romans 13, 13 through 14, Paul says, let us walk properly. Notice the language again, walk, right? Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we're not called to walk in darkness, not called to do shameful things in secret, 
We're called to walk properly. We're called to walk in the light. We're called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to starve our fleshly desires. We're called to walk in a worthwhile, serious, and careful manner before the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Confession feels much better. Feels much better in the moment to walk in a way that neglects my spiritual needs. Okay? This feels much better in the moment to walk in a way that neglects my spiritual needs. My, my momentary wants are usually far more emotionally, psychologically, physically overpowering than my spiritual needs. Now, don't get me wrong. Those wants are not more powerful than the God who can satisfy and sustain those needs, but they are and do feel more powerful in the moment than those actual needs. Uh, for instance, um, an in-the-moment want when uh, something frustrating happens is to just get angry like the Hulk. Smash, right? That's momentary. feels much better to do that. My spiritual need is to draw away, beg God to give me patience and kindness and gentleness, right? That's my spiritual need. It's much easier in the moment to just go off. Um, probably a thousand other illustrations I could give you. That's just probably a good one for now. It feels easier. The problem is that when I gratify my momentary wants, and when I resist, stiff-arm my spiritual needs, what happens is I starve my heart. Starve my heart and my soul of what it really needs while giving my sinful flesh what it wants. I'm feeding my flesh rather than feeding my spiritual needs. Serious thing to consider. Got to be careful to walk in a manner that is worthy of my calling. Number three. Number three, we're called to walk according to one hope. It's interesting to think about how hope affects a person's walk. So put that thinking cap on just for a minute. Think about how hope affects a person's walk. Now, there are only two places that you and I can place our hope in. Uh, I can either hope for earthly things or I can hope for eternal things, right? Uh, I can hope in things below down here on earth or I can hope in things above. You don't get both. You get one or the other. And you're either placing it in one place or the other. And I'll t I would even stretch it this far. And I don't think it's a stretch at all. I'd just say it this way, that if you think you're hoping in eternal things and you've mixed earthly things in with that hope. That's called, it's a theological term called syncretism. I think you would apply that in many other ways, but this would be one of the ways I think you could apply it. You'd be syncing two things together and assuming that somehow you'd get your needs met, your true spiritual needs. And so you can't really, can't really mix them together. You've really just got to say, hey, eternal things are where I need to place my hope, not earthly things. See, when, when my hope rests at any point in earthly things, that I will experience momentary happiness at the expense of eternal joy. If I place my hope in earthly things, I will experience momentary happiness at the expense of eternal joy. Trading the more important thing for a lesser thing. Follow me? It's a struggle that we all struggle with, okay? 
So for me, I, I experience a certain levels of happiness in being married to my wife. We've been married now for 15 and a half years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd be so happy later if I was wrong. <laughs> I, but I experience a certain amount of happiness in marriage to my wife, and I experience a certain amount of happiness as a father to my children. I certain amount, uh, experience a certain level of happiness uh, pastoring and planting a church. Um, and I have, I have great hope for my marriage. I have great hope for my kids. I have great hope for our church. I, I, I dream about what the future may bring. I can't compete with that. I can't, I can't. I can't scream louder than you. I'm sorry. I, I dream about what the future is going to bring, right? I, I ask God to make those dreams come true. It's good prayers. Good dreams, not, not sinful in and of themselves. But here's the thing. The moment that something goes wrong in any of those categories, marriage, family, work, right? The moment that something goes wrong there, the moment something doesn't go the way that I wished it would, the moment something doesn't go the way that I wanted it to, the moment that my wants, my earthly desires don't get met, <clears throat> that's the moment when the foundation of my hope gets tested. And the way that I respond and react and live is proof of where my hope actually was in the first place. So I'm convinced that if Satan wants to get you and I off course in our calling. All he's got to do is dangle a new hope in front of you. Right? Just dangle a new hope in front of you. Get you to hope in something that's not everlasting. Start chasing that down. Shiny new thing. That leads to destruction, right? So when my wife and I have a spat, one of my kids has a rough day, church isn't progressing the way that I wish it would. That's the moment where my hope gets tested, right? Just one of some of the moments. Do I lash out in anger? Do I harbor bitterness and unforgiveness? Do I retreat and escape? Do I fall into despair? Do I pursue rebellion and sin in those moments? In these moments when I interrogate my heart, which is part of what it means to follow your call is to interrogate your heart, right? What's happening, heart? What are you doing? Why am I walking this way? Interrogate your heart, chase that sin from the fruit down to the root, back up again. In those moments when I interrogate my heart, man, I have an opportunity to redirect the desires of my heart towards one stable, steadfast anchor for the hope of my soul, which is Christ, Right? True hope produces eternal joy. That's what true hope produces. True hope produces eternal joy amidst the most difficult of earthly circumstances. When Paul says, I urge you to walk just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, reminds me of Psalm 42. I hope that one's on the screen. It is. One of my favorite psalms of all time, Psalm 42.5, David says, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now catch what David is doing here. He's interrogating his heart. Why are you so cast down, soul? He's not just like, I'm going to ignore that, forget that, don't want to deal with that, going to run away from that, go medicate, do something else, right? He's actually interrogating his heart. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so sad? interrogating, questioning his heart like a really good persecutor, right? Prosecutor, attorney, that's what I'm thinking in my head, prosecuting attorney. What's happening, heart? Tell me what's going on. Why are you so sad? Why are you this way? He's not running from it. He's not hiding from it. He's not placating. He's not medicating it, not ignoring it. He's going after it. Going after it. Why are you so down? And then what does he do after that? Preaches to his soul. Hope in God. Hope in God. He is my salvation. He is my God. I will again praise him. He's telling his heart, stop being downcast. You have a God you can worship. Put your hope in him and him alone and get your eyes off of all these other false hopes, cheap hopes that you could have. That's what David's doing. The way that we walk is directly affected by the source of our hope. And we're called to walk according to one hope, and that one hope is Christ. My one hope is not my marriage. My one hope is not my kids. And my one hope is not our church. Christ is my one hope. He is my salvation. He is worthy of my praise even in the midst of the most difficult and trying of circumstances. When my earthly dreams, my earthly wants are dashed on the rocks of hardship and disappointment, and the only way that I walk like Jesus in that world is to reorient my heart towards Christ as the fulfillment of my hope. Listen, this is the hope that possessed the Apostle Paul. This one hope enabled him Think about it. His earthly circumstances in that prison cell seemed dismal at best. That one hope, clinging to the hope of Christ, enabled him not only to say, but I think to walk this out as well, able to say, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to to your call. Called to walk according to one hope. Now, in conclusion, as we conclude, I want to wrap it up this way. We, this sermon uh, and this passage is super, like, aimed right at you, right? Some of you got to feel that as I'm preaching, felt that as I'm preparing. But this is aimed right at me, right? Like, Joe, you've got to walk out this calling as a prisoner for the Lord in a way that is worthy of Christ. And keep your hope focused on him. Very personal call to repentance, right? Quit walking that way, walk this way, right? There's that. I want, I want to get our eyes off of that for a minute. I want to think about the church and the community. What, what would happen in a church family and what would happen in the community that surrounds that church family if individuals in a church family begin to just walk this way, Right? which kind of reminds me of old Errol Smith's song. Walk this way! There, I did it, all right? Lighten the mood just a little bit. 
Look, look further on in Ephesians 4, just from an expositional standpoint, uh, drawing it out of the passage close to it. Uh, further on in, in chapter 4, uh, verses, I think, 12 through 14 or 13 through 14, something like that. Uh, he says that the saints, here's what the outcome is. The church would look like. Church would look like a group of saints who are equipped for the work of ministry. Building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So when I see this as the outcome of individuals who apply this and become obedient to this kind of sermon, when we begin to walk as prisoners, right? And to walk in a worthwhile, careful, serious way, we hold fast to Christ as our only hope, then the result in a church family and in a community is a church is becoming more and more united in their faith. Really, the strongest theme of this entire passage is unity. Really, church that's united together and tied together, heading the same direction. It's a church that is less divided and more united. It's a church that's less childish and more mature. It's a church that's less full of ourselves and more full of the presence of Christ. It's a church that's less like children and more like adults. It's a church that's not tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of new teaching. It looks like a church full of people that is not derailed by human or earthly teaching. It looks like a church that's not given over to quick fix schemes that deceive our hearts. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like marriages that are built to last. It looks like friendships that are reconciled and restored. It looks like families that are whole and healed. It looks like victory over addiction, ministries that serve real needs, widows being cared for, orphans being adopted, starving people being fed, homeless people being given new homes, outreach events that serve the community, broken people being invited into the family of God. That's what this looks like. It looks like a church that is full of people who are hearing and following the call of God on their lives as prisoners for the Lord who walk in a worthy and serious manner because they are focused on one hope. And one hope is Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. Is that you? Can you say, I've been called by God? Can you say, I'm God's prisoner. I am owned by him. I belong to him. Nothing else owns me. I belong to no one else except for Christ. Can you say that? Can you say, I take my calling seriously because Christ is my only hope? That's my prayer. So let's pray. Father, we come before you at the end of our time in Scripture this morning, and we beg you, I beg you, God, to apply this to our hearts and help us to become obedient to the call of the gospel. Help us to become obedient to the word that has just been preached among us. Help us to hear from your spirit. But help us to repent where we need to repent. Bring healing where there is woundedness and bring strength where there is brokenness. Help us to walk out this call from you in a serious and worthy way. 
Help us to place the affections of our hearts squarely upon you. Make yourself the hope of our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.